You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We're joined today by Dr. Stacy Dixon, who is the Deputy Director of the Intelligence Advanced Research Project Activity, or IARPA. Dr. Dixon joined IARPA as Deputy Director in January of 2016. Prior to that, she served with the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the NGA, where she was the Deputy Director of InnoVision and oversaw geospatial intelligence research and development. Prior to InnoVision, she served as NGA's Chief of Congressional and Intergovernmental Affairs. From 07 to 2010, she worked on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence staff and for the Central Intelligence Agency, assigned in the National Reconnaissance Office, Advanced Systems and Technology Directorate from 03 to 07. Dr. Dixon holds a doctorate and master's degrees in mechanical engineering from Georgia Tech and a BA, or actually BS, in mechanical engineering from Stanford University. She was a chemical engineering postdoctoral fellow at the University of Minnesota, and she's a native Washingtonian. Welcome, and thank you for joining us here at SpyCast. Thank you for having us. So you spent a lot of time in school to get your degrees, as we both did, uh, but mechanical engineering is not necessarily the most common path to working within the intelligence community. Can you tell us a little bit about what drew you to this field? So the field itself, I always liked putting things together and breaking them apart and try to understand puzzles and um, trying to figure out solutions for things. I was drawn to the engineering and math and science because of that. My role, uh, getting into the intelligence community was sort of a, more of a, a fortuitous type of thing. I was actually on the path to become a professor. Uh, I was out doing the postdoc, as you mentioned, in University of Minnesota. Um, I was actually doing biomechanics, so the mechanical properties of arteries, doing tissue engineering, and I sort of came to this realization that I wasn't ready to continue with that research and wanted to do something different. What ended up happening was, uh, unfortunately, it was the recession of 2002, which I think uh, provided a lot of opportunity for looking at other things. Yeah. And ended up running into a family friend who worked within the intelligence community who, once they learned that I had a mechanical engineering degree, uh, knew about the National Reconnaissance Office and how that is a very strong discipline within the uh, building satellites uh, in that field. So convinced me to at least apply. And once I got the interview, the person I interviewed with, while they couldn't tell me much at all about yeah. what they were doing, was so excited about the work itself. And it just seemed like an interesting possibility. Um, it was something that I had never even, despite living in DC and growing up here, 
I knew about government, I knew about intelligence, but I hadn't really ever saw it as a career path. So all of a sudden it was something that was something worth considering. Yeah, and I think that people may not understand, I mean, I've harped on it, but people may not understand the confluence of the STEM fields and the intelligence community, and it's more important than ever before. When you talk to students out there who are graduate students or they're undergrads working in a scientific field, is your advice to them, I mean, I was also, let me give you a little background, I was also not looking to be a professor from, you know, when I realized the, the job, I didn't want to work at Central Connecticut State University for the Blind, you know, as a professor and try to work my way up. I was always going to work within the intelligence field in some way. But a lot of people look at not being a professor as the fallback. And would you give advice to people who are in grad school right now or thinking about a career in science or technology or engineering that don't look at it as a fallback, but perhaps as your primary future career? Absolutely. The skills that you're learning, how to think, how to hypothesize, how to gather information, how to solve puzzles, how to really figure out problems and challenges is useful no matter where you are. And going the route of academia is only one of many, many options. Um, I think finding myself in the intelligence community with this skill set, you can do the technical jobs, but you can also do the jobs that aren't technical. Just the way that we're trained to think as scientists and technologists and engineers and mathematicians really applies anywhere in the community. Well, anywhere at all, but definitely within the intelligence community. Right. IARPA, people may not know a whole lot about. Uh, you've only been around for about a decade. Uh, people may, don't you mean DARPA? No, I don't mean DARPA. Um, and, and so our listeners may know a whole lot more about DARPA than IARPA. What, what, why was the... Why was this agency stood up in the first place? Uh, it seems like a no-brainer, but why Why at the time? Uh, what was the impetus behind set, standing up IARPA? Uh, and what is your current role? I mean, again, this is the big, broad question, right? What do you guys do? So we were stood up because there was a realization that it was very difficult for the intelligence agencies who have that operational mission to set aside sufficient funding to be able to fund things that were three, five more years out and that perhaps having an organization that was separate from that, separate from those day-to-day, -day, just keep our officers safe responsibilities, mm -hmm. could perhaps focus more on their issues, issues for them. So ARPA was stood up as something, uh, we called it blue sky research, or something that was looking farther out in the horizon, something that uh, was a, had the ability to take on high risk, but also with the expectation that some of these will develop high payoff solutions that would give the intelligence community this overwhelming advantage that it needed. So IARPA was formed from pieces and parts of other agencies and then sort of became its own entity where our customers are the 17 elements of the intelligence agency. So the ones everyone knows about and then the smaller elements that are part of other government organizations too. And we have uh, successfully transitioned capabilities to almost all of them, which we're pretty proud of. All of them in one way or the other have used some of our capabilities, even if they weren't the exact transition partner. But we look at their tough challenges we recruit from inside their workforce. A lot of our program managers have had as their, or, uh, their origin that they were intelligence officers somewhere else in the community. So they bring a challenge that they've probably been working on for some time. We try to talk to the other agencies about what are your challenges, what are your hard problems. If it's something that they're not able or willing to take on at that point in time, it's something that becomes uh, attractive for us to look at as a potential program. So if I'm getting this right, the, like the Director of Science and Technology at CIA, mm -hmm. they're really working on the day-to-day, -day, making sure they can create products that are useful. You know, They don't have the luxury of failing a lot. They actually have to pull stuff off. So I want to ask you, you know, what, what the acceptability of failure has to be really built in to IR, but you've got to be willing, if you're going to do high risk, you've got to be willing to... to 
take some lumps along the way. Absolutely. And, and failure, failure is interesting because there are different reasons that you might fail. You might fail because the technology just isn't ready yet. You might fail because of some programmatic or uh, inability to actually manage the program well. That is the unacceptable failure. Right. The acceptable failure is the metrics were too hard, the technology isn't here, perhaps in another five, 10 years we'll actually be able to accomplish this, but right now, the just technology isn't there. And so we talk a lot about failure. I think our transition rate is, it's about 70%, which is kind of high. That's pretty good, um, yeah. Which may mean that we're not taking enough risks. So we're looking back at our portfolio to figure out if we can push the envelope even further and try to make those metrics even harder in places. But even for things that aren't succeeding, there's always something that you can learn at the science level, the right. engineering level. And the failure would be not sharing those things so others can learn from them also. Well, I think that's that's kind of the key component with science is that, you know, your failure is kind of built into this right. whole scientific method. It's if you succeed all the time, you're really not really not testing any kind of hypotheses that's even worth going after. That's true. So, I mean, how do you determine that balance? I mean, that has to be kind of a constant day to day is like, you know, should our success rate be much, much lower? I mean, do you, do you, do you think you have the mandate to fail a lot more than you already are. I think you do. I think yeah. in any new organization, you want to make sure that you can show impact quickly. And by doing that, not that you're taking on things that are not challenging, but you're pushing them in a way to make sure that there's something that the ultimate customer um, wants to get at the end of the program. I think we have the luxury now of being able to say, okay, we have a good track record, you know, 10 years of, of successes. Let's see how much more we can push the envelope. We'll continue to, along the way, transition interim capabilities. But for that final goal, let's make it really hard. Let's make it something that no one even thought was possible. Yeah, I mean, it, there's a little, maybe even science fiction thrown in here where you're looking at things that people haven't even thought of yet. I mean, I, and I think that's that's gotta be fun for a scientist to kind of be put in a position where you know, you're not looking for funding like you would be at a university and kind of like, you know, praying for some kind of government grant. You're kind of said, go and figure out something really cool that no one's thought of before. That's very true. I think that is one thing that kind of keeps people coming towards us and being attracted to the role of program manager, but just keeps our day-to-day -day existence really exciting because you sort of ask what, you know, what is my role here? So as deputy director, I do support our director, Jason Matheny, and we are choosing the programs that we actually fund. We're watching them along the way. We have program reviews for every program every six months. We're making funding decisions. We're making, well, the program managers are making decisions as to who they recommend, and then we're sort of signing off on those decisions. But then we have all the enabling function, you know, security, IT, acquisition, legal, contracts, public affairs, all those things that help us actually get the job done. Mm -hmm. I do spend a bit more time focused on the internal things. Let me ask you, because again, a lot of our audience has probably heard of DARPA. I mean, they, they've gotten a lot more publicity lately, you know, invented the internet, not Al Gore, but it was DARPA. Um, so can we talk about similarities and differences between the two organizations? I mean, are there, is it just changing the first letter and going from defense to intelligence, or are there kind of key differences between the two agencies? So I'm going to hit the, the similarities okay. first. So IARPA was created and modeled after DARPA, so there are going to be some obvious similarities. And our first uh, official director, Dr. Lisa Porta, Porter, was actually a DARPA program manager and, and uh, senior scientist there. So she came and brought some of the best of what DARPA has to offer. So similarities include uh, programs that last about three to five years, program managers who are term limited, the use of the Heilmeier questions to actually help define what is a good program to start. Have we done our due diligence to actually know what the state of the art is, that we're actually going to be contributing something? Um, differences, we're a lot smaller. We're probably the size of one of their technical offices. And uh, 
they focusing on defense. I sort of like to think of it as they're doing, they're looking for the uh, emerging tech, the sort of being the ones that deliver tech surprise, but they're also looking at how to defend against the threats that are out there. Our job, sort of the intelligence side, is to try to figure out at the earliest possibility what those threats are. Right. How do we actually uh, collect against them? How do we know that they're coming so that we can be pre prepared? We have a great relationship with them. Our program managers talk back and forth, those that are in similar fields. And I think that's been, I think that will continue, but that's been a very strong suit because you can imagine we're looking at somewhat similar threats, albeit right. from different sides of a coin. But having the conversation to make sure that we're not duplicating effort, that we can build on each other's strengths is something that we've, we've encouraged within the programs. Yeah, you, you brought up the Hellmeyer catechism, or mm -hmm. at least the questions. And I think for people that don't know about them, I don't need you to go through all of them, but I think that this is, uh, forget just the science and technology side, this kind of seems like a really good checklist for life in, in many, you know, as you're making decisions. It's one of these that science people will know a little bit about. Uh, again, not going through one by one, can you talk a little bit about the, kind of that, that methodology. Absolutely. And, and it's really, it's not that many of them. So it's easy. Yeah. So what are you trying to do? I mean, that, that is number one. And, and you'd be amazed how difficult it can be to articulate what you're actually trying to do. At the end of it, what's the impact if you succeed? Who's going to care about what you're delivering? How much is it going to cost you? How are you going to measure your success? And I think that one particularly yeah. is one that IARPA takes very seriously. We spend a lot of focus, time, and effort and funding on test and evaluation, making sure that we can prove that we've actually hit our metrics, making sure that when we set up experiments that we have enough subjects in the experiments that we can actually have statistical significance in what we're trying to accomplish. Um, more than any organization I've ever worked for before, IARPA's hmm. focus on test and evaluation is um, impressive and I think uh, a gold standard for the intelligence community and really for government. Let me, let me ask you, because some people may just think that this is involved in collection or one little part of the intelligence community, but IARPA really has what you call four main research thrusts. And it, essentially, it's an umbrella over what everything that happens within the intelligence community. It's all the different aspects of what happens and how you influence the investment. Do you focus on one more than the other, or is it basically even across the board collection analysis operations um, and kind of warning intelligence, anticipatory intelligence? We have a pretty good balance right now in terms of the number of programs and program managers in each. And, and for the thrust, it's interesting. It started out probably a lot more formal where everything needed to be binned. The more we do different programs, it's harder to bend them into one of those four areas. And uh, so it, it, it's sort of a, it's a loose guidance. We do look across the portfolio, though, and if we see that we're spending more money or more time and effort on one than the other, there's probably some one of our customers that's not getting as much attention. So we'll take a look at our portfolio periodically to make sure that we aren't missing some research areas, missing some um, program manager expertise in those areas, and then go out and try to recruit or try to find people that are willing to take on programs there. But they're sort of they're guiding boxes at, at this point in time. But I think they're ones that people recognize. You know, yeah. you mentioned analysis, collection, right. anticipatory intelligence is probably um, the what we do a lot of forecasting work on that one. But that's the one that um, I think a lot of the community is talking about now. And then operations, which for us is is more focused on uh, computing. So anywhere between the microelectrics and the electronic side, all the way to the algorithms. So they're all very broad. Right. And at some point, there is a gray area in between the the four. I mean, when you when you first stood up, it was probably very uh, demarcated, and right. as you're kind of figuring and getting your getting your feet under you, becoming a little bit more nebulous as you move forward. It does. I find that many of the programs are very multidisciplinary, and I think that's also one of the strengths of the people that are coming to work with us. They know that, generally speaking, there isn't one entity, whether it's a company or an uh, academic institution, who can do it all. And they find the partners who are sort of best in the world to be able to come and be on their teams, to be able to try to achieve whatever the metric that we've set. 
you've alluded to this before, because IARPA is not actually doing the research itself. But you know, you're you, you farm it out's the wrong word. You're 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 looking for people within you know universities or within uh, corporations that do scientific and technological research. But how do you draw upon the technological and operational expertise that actually comes from the intelligence agencies themselves? How do you how do you strike this balance between uh, going out to the civilian world and at the same time making sure that you're working directly with these agencies? So there's a couple of ways we do that. One of our core of program managers, which are about two dozen at this point in time, about a third of them are actually on rotation from various intelligence agencies. So that's one to make one way to make sure that we actually have the specific needs of the that intelligence discipline covered in our programs. We invite uh, other members of agencies to be part of our government advisory teams on various programs. We talk with them in the beginning and they help us to define whether or not it's something that's gonna be useful for them when we finish the research to help define the metrics so that we can establish numbers that actually, if we're able to achieve them, can move them forward in their in their mission space. Are there taskings that, for lack of a better word, right, I'm using the intelligence community word, are there taskings that come from agencies? Is there a, is there a command technology, again, using a kind of a wonky word, element to what you do? Like, does CIA come to you and say, we'd love to have X, Y, and Z, we can't fund it, and director of S&T, can you take a wild flyer at it for us? So I would say mostly no. Okay. We have really good dialogues with the leaders of the S&T organizations within the community. So we may have these unofficial di- you know, com- conversations mm-hmm. that help us to know what their challenges are. I think we want to stay out of the business of responding to direct requirements from them. Right. Because part of what we do is try to be disruptive. Part of what we do is changing things and, and requiring them to change culture in some senses to be able to welcome in some sort of new capability. So we want to have the dialogue. We want to know what their hard problems are, but we want to make sure that it doesn't get to the point where it's sort of a requirements-driven tasking because they can do that internally. Well, and they may not, if they're looking so narrowly focused, they may not be asking for the right thing. I know it's kind of, it, it sounds like, well, you don't really know what you need, but they're they're thinking maybe too day-to-day and not big picture enough, perhaps. I'm putting words in your mouth. Anyway. No, but that, that can be the case. Yeah. They need to, they need to since their, their timeline for delivery can be shorter. They may be wanting something six months, 12 months, 18 months. If we've got something that's three to five years and you're going to need every one of those days between three to five years to actually deliver it, that might not be something that they're interested in investing in. But we can invest in it. We can bring their people on board. We can have their people as part of the team. Uh, and then hopefully at the end, we'll have something that they realize that's going to be really that's going to be game changing for us going forward. You talk about the three to five year limitations on most of these projects. Are you breaking big problems into three to five year chunks. My, my question basically, are you looking 25 years into the future and then breaking it into kind of ways and pathways to get to that big change moment in 25 years? Or um, are you just kind of getting narrowly focused on that shorter time period? There's a little variety. For the most part, we're, these are, for the most part, it's programs that are, you can do something in three to five years. But during that course, you're always going to learn something else. And state-of-the-art in industry is going to probably catch up with you at this time. So I can think of a couple of situations where, for example, in some of our biometrics programs, you know, what we could do five years ago and what we can do now are very different things. Being able to know that we can take on a new biometrics program to actually do something even more impactful than we did in the past is something we're willing to do. Uh, probably our longest term and longest lasting research areas would be in the computing fields, right. something like quantum computing. That's what I was, I mean, you know, we can kind of, futurists can look out 20, 25 years and say things like fancy words of quantum teleportation and like moving moving data and 
seeing actual physical things. And that's not happening in five years or three years, you know, but there are pieces that you can work your way to. Absolutely. And that's, that's how you break it down. We, we can do it that way. Yeah. Correct. And, and then you have your, have the benefit of having different program managers along the way, because they're not going to be there for the most part from the entire span of that program. Every three to five years, they're going to be bringing in a new person behind them. Or we'll bring in someone behind them to actually take the research forward. And that brings a different, a right. different approach, a different edge. So it's always, I would say we don't institutionalize programs. You know, we don't have one thing that continues just forever, but we do. There's some that are going to be enduring problems that you do need to break up into smaller pieces along the way. And the program manager concept is very interesting because, I mean, basically they're given an extraordinary amount of power, for lack of a better word, to kind of take this and run with it. And as long as they're kind of staying within whatever they're mandated to do, they have a lot of a lot of decision making. They really do. Many of them come in as scientists and, and engineers who were doing the, the thing on their own, right? Whatever their research uh, discipline was, they were actually physically doing that. They might have had a team, they might have been leading others, but they were really in the hands-on bench getting, you know, getting in the dirt. Uh, as a program manager, you take a step back from that. You know, you're not doing the hands-on work. You are kind of orchestrating what happens. You develop the proposal so that people can propose against it. You then serve as somewhat of a referee because you've got different com teams competing, mm -hmm. often bringing different approaches to try to solve your metric. And then there are milestones along the way that you get to judge to determine whether who goes forward, who has actually accomplished the metric and shows promise to be able to accomplish the next one. So I think I, it seems like a really fun job. I mean, a lot of them um, seem to really enjoy the fact that they can push the science forward, they can push the engineering forward in the time that they're there and really impact the greater field and not just the intelligence community, but the greater scientific organizations. Well, let me ask you that because I think that's a really good segue to my next question because if you go to the IRPA website, there's tons of information. Right. It's a very transparent organization and you just kind of alluded to the fact that some of these scientific discoveries are expanded to the broader scientific community, which, you know, it's fantastic for scientists, but it does beg the question, is there a, a, a fear of other people picking up on this I mean, other countries? Is there a counterintelligence element to this? Or I know some of the stuff you do is secret. A lot of it is open source. A lot of it is out there. Um, how much are we, I mean, you can't tell me specifics, but is there an underlying worry that this advanced research will be a target? of intelligence agencies in other countries. So of course that, that's going to be an initial worry. I think we've developed a program called Research Technology Protection, which really looks at trying to define the line at which something can be done unclassified and something can be done classified. That team is fantastic. It's a best practice across the intelligence community. And they work with the mission partners to know where the sensitivities actually are so that we can drive more things to the unclassified realm. We don't want to limit ourselves, right? We want to be able to get the best talent no matter where it is, not even just in the country, but in the world. Yeah. We do have foreign partners or foreign international players in some of our, our research teams, and that's because they're really good, and we want to make sure their expertise is there. A lot of our research is foundational, so it really is something that people in academia who are uncleared, people in industry who are partners who probably never thought that they'd be working with a government ever, all of a sudden have a capability or have a, a, a subject matter expertise that we really can benefit from. So we are the ones that are sort of in the front there, being able to interact with all of these different players that it can be more difficult for others to do. Yeah, well, for somebody who studies the intelligence community and has banged his head against the wall dealing with FOIA and, and redaction and everything else, it's incredibly refreshing to see, I mean, just... I spent hours just going through the programs and like, wow, neat. I mean, there's so much there information out there. Absolutely. So listeners, take some time because I'm going to ask you actually to walk through a couple of the programs that I thought were just really cool. But 
this is not all. I mean, there's there's so many on there, and there's you look at this and go, oh, I actually can see where my tax dollars are being spent in a very cool and effective way because some of this, I mean, cutting edge is too tame a word for some of this. It's pretty extraordinary what what you guys are working on. Thank you. And thank you for the, the, the compliment. To be called transparent is what we're aiming for. Yeah, you don't get that too often, right, in this world. And I, and I think that uh, it's very refreshing to – I mean, I, understandably, there are certain things that stay classified. Uh, but the overclassification that plagues the rest of the IC doesn't seem to be apparent here. And that's really good to see uh, for somebody that studies this and wants to know a little bit about it. So let me actually, some of these, these are really neat programs. I kind of picked, cherry picked a couple. And you may not know encyclopedic knowledge about every one of these programs. And if not, that's perfectly fine. But I want to attack, ask you about a couple of them. The first one is the Cyber Attack Automated Unconventional Sensor Environment, or CAUSE. All of these have wonderful acronyms. Did, you, did IARPA develop an acronym machine or something? Because some of these no, are great. this is the program managers using <laughs> their extreme creativity in a very geeky way yes. to come up with these awesome it's names. And I say wonderfully geeky, nerdy. Yeah. lovingly. Yes. It's wonderfully nerdy. Absolutely. That program sounds really interesting because cyber is now, of course, on everybody's mind, whether election or otherwise. Um, but this really looks like something that is going to attempt to almost pre- I mean, I think a minority report all the time when I look at some of these programs because it's like this pre-crime. This is you're trying to actually anticipate cyber attacks before they actually happen. Correct. So, and actually, this is one that I am very familiar with. So, Cause is a, a, one of our newer programs. It just kicked off earlier this year, so we don't really have results to report just yet. But the but the theory behind it is that when we when a cyber attack happens, when we start to go back into the records and look forensically over, you know, the months before. Typically, we can see indicators that something was going to happen, whether it's planning stage, some sort of package delivery stage. There are things that are happening that if we had caught them before, we might have known that something was headed our way. So leveraging off of one of our other older programs called Open Source Indicators, where we used social media, we used um, 30,000 different sources of uh, open source information to help predict things like civil unrest or disease outbreaks. We use similar technology and algorithms. Apply that, though, to the cyber realm. So what mm -hmm. can you find out about an attack before it happens? Are there conversations about you know, malware that are out there? You know, when, you look at the, when, you look at the, uh, when you look at the dark web, when you look at the hacker forums, what information is being discussed that might indicate that something's going to happen? I think one of the more challenging pieces of it is going to be trying to figure out who might be the victim of the potential attack right. and helping them so that they're not the victim and it's just something that we stopped from happening because we were able to alert to it a lot earlier. You don't want to be a Cassandra and know it's coming and not be able to do anything about it. Correct. Right? Absolutely. And you don't want to be, you know, the first of the chorus after the fact saying, oh, yeah, <laughs> our system caught it, but we just didn't realize. Right. You want to you want to actually have something that raises to the top. And um, it's going to be a fantastic. It'll be sort of a, a, a tournament of sorts where the performers are predicting real time uh, once they have their code and their automated systems is something coming. Um, and automated is very important because we want to make sure that things can run in the background and it's not people actually having to do this. We want this to be able to run, you know, 24-7. And is this, is this, you have algorithms, but is this trying to integrate some kind of, let's not use the word artificial intelligence, but integrate some kind of advanced computing capability? Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of our programs have that requirement. And so you're trying to teach the, you're trying to learn based on the trends that are happening um, and, and using machine learning to actually figure out 
what's out there, what are the trends, making the linkages that sometimes because the, of the inundation that we're in with all of this data that it's harder for humans to do. Um, right. left, to the, left with enough time and energy, maybe a human could do it, but you're adding the machine there to kind of help out and, and be able to run and run the sort of thought processes that a person might have, but let the computer run it much faster, frankly. I mean, are, are you constantly concerned that some of these trends wait? What happens when they change? What happens when the trends begin to evolve? What happens when some some cyber hacker out there is listening to this podcast and going, oh, well, right. yeah. Like, is, is there built-in mechanisms for changing with it? You do need to do that. And we're trying to find automated ways to actually recognize when trends are changing so that we can incorporate those in all of our programs that involve some sort of trend analysis. So the program that I found interesting, I, this is right kind of on the same path, is the Machine Intelligence from Cortical Networks Programmer Microns. Microns, yes. Uh, which is, it seems incredibly science fiction, but from what I understand, you want to reverse engineer a piece of the brain and figure out what makes it work and then build a computer based on that. Uh, that that's, that's crazy. That's in such a wonderful way, right? <laughs> that, that is the long-term goal, building the computer that more closely mimics how the brain calculates, how the brain processes information. So we're starting with a very uh, a smaller goal of trying to understand visual processing. So how is it that people can recognize images so quickly? Um, the experiments involve, experiments involve uh, modeling that, looking at exactly what parts of the brain are recognizing the images. Um, taking advantage of the, the, the computing technology that's out there to be able to actually scan portions of the brain while it's processing this information, um, coupling that with later electron microscopy scans to be able to see exactly the neuronal patterns that are in that particular um, a cubic uh, millimeter, I believe is the, the size that they're going for, and then being able to actually draw the linkages so that you're you're actually re, uh, you're like reverse engineering, like you said. You're taking the linkages and trying to figure out from a processing perspective, how do you create that as an algorithm? The ultimate goal would then to be a computer that is a lot more closely aligned to the way that the brain processes information. The extraordinary part about this is it's gonna be amazing for computer science, but it sounds like for neuroscience also, this is something that a lot of people probably are anticipating you're going to find out stuff about the brain that people hadn't thought of before either. What I've been really excited about is the type of press and that we've been getting from organizations that do focus on um, you know, different brains and, and understanding things and, and how excited they are about the research in addition to the individuals. So the neuroscience folks, the, um, the computer science folks, bringing them together to use the best of each group to really push this thing forward. Um, that's been a lot of fun to watch. And some of the modeling that we've seen and just the ability to then replicate that on in computer models and, and to see what it looks like is it's yes it is really cool well and i think that people may know about darpa the fact that a lot of their military design programs have now trickled down to civilian use have been again like the internet like gps like a lot of the materials engineering that darpa has done it sounds like a lot of what you're going to do down the road may be game changing when it i mean understanding the brain and neural pathways and other things could be Future cures for Alzheimer's could be ways of, of creating, you know, Parkinson's, a, a lot of things that are intelligence specific now that may have some real tangible effects for everybody down the road. Absolutely. And that, that is, I think, one of the reasons there has been that much excitement about that particular program. Um, but a lot of what we do, a lot of the programs do have that 
that piece of it that really is beneficial to the greater society. And that's really exciting to, for the researchers who may have been working in the past on something so specific to just an intelligence community, knowing that they're going to really be able to impact the broader community really gives you that good feeling. And, right. and we really do encourage publications and peer-reviewed peer publications specifically. So um, going to our website, you mentioned the amount of information that's there. And we have links to articles right. on anything that we funded um, generally, there's an identifier on there, and, and that actually allows us to, you know, every year, 500 plus, I think, um, articles are actually published on IARPA, and all of those can be linked from our website. So, yeah, oh, I, uh, there are a couple of these programs. I'm like, what the hell is this? And I like, look at the link. I'm like, oh, that that explains it better than I thought it was. Let me ask you about Project Mercury, which is a little bit more, uh, not as quite as open source, um, but there's a little bit of information. You don't have to get too much into it, but this is. It sounds like something that you've done in the open source world that you're trying to see if it can be done in the not so open source world. Can you talk a as much as you possibly can about Project Mercury? Because I think our audience would find it pretty interesting. You kind of describe what I can talk about. All right, well. <laughs> but it's true. We, we take the, the program, the practices of being able to find indicators. And we've take that and we've applied that mainly to open source information. So, you know, those 30,000 data sources that I mentioned before. Now we're going to apply it to internal classified data sources and see what, what we can uh, anticipate and forecast based on those things that weren't previously looked at by anyone because they were looking at very specific things. Your website talked about SIGINT as being Correct, one of the, yeah. exactly. It's, you know, sort of open the floodgates and let us look at everything and, and let's figure out what we can see. Well, is it, that, I'm going to push the envelope as much as I can, but you can obviously say what you can and can't say. I mean, that's the real criticism of the metadata collection programs. And a lot of what's happened, you know, we've talked about in the last 10 years, the NSA has done is that it's impossible to deal with all this data. Uh, this sounds like it's an attempt to figure out what to do with some of it, at least. I'd say that's true. Okay. I think, I think because individual organizations have very specific things that they need to do their job, there's a lot of data they collect that isn't necessarily useful for that purpose, but may have a lot of other purposes for helping us see what else mm. might be coming. So um, we're going we're gonna to try to make sure that the data that is collected is used to the maximum extent possible. And if we can discover other trends, and again, back to that forecasting thing, kind of be able to get in front of something that's coming based on what's collected, that's what we're trying to do. I'm going to let you off. The, I, I think the rest of the stuff I'm going to ask you about is, is open in the world. Um, let me ask you about functional genomic and computational assessment of threats, FUNGCAT. FUNGCAT. That, that's one they couldn't quite find a great acronym for. This one was actually really interesting to me because you're really looking, well, it's half interesting to me, but it's also might freak some people out. It's a little bit about DNA sequencing and looking at things like bioinformation from DNA. Uh, what What is the kind of ultimate goal of this? Um, because this really does sound more science fiction-y than anything else. It's really looking at another way to characterize DNA, trying to find better ways to identify what the threats are, especially as we get into this realm of synthetic biology. There's a lot, of, a lot, more, um, uh, there's a lot more things that are going to be produced. How can we better know what we should be worried about and what we shouldn't be worried about? Talking about like genetically modified bioweapons or, or things that... I know I, there's there's always the conversation about can you genetically modify a bioweapon to affect only Arab ethnicities or only you know Asians? Is that what we're looking at here? Or probably you've taken it a step further. Okay. Just if we know that it's a, a bioweapon versus just a, a new kind of vegetable, okay, um, would be a, a good sign. <laughs> I mean, and there and there baby ways, steps. Baby there, steps. There are ways to do that now, but yeah. there's a lot of. I think we're going to see a lot more sequencing going forward. And the fact of the matter is, um, it's a lot of information and 
we need better ways to be able to assess what we need to worry about with just with respect to those kind of sequences. I, I talked to a lot of kind of older ex-agency types who worked in the 60s and 70s in Moscow and trying to recruit assets over there and trying to find out who they should trust and who they should not trust. So I want to ask you about tools for recognizing useful signals of trustworthiness, which it wonderfully acronyms into trust. Um, this seems like it's uh, tailor-made for this particular role of trying to figure out who is a dangle, who is real, who are we trying uh, to, to, who can we actually get information from? Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about this program? It's, it's trying to, like you said, trying to figure out with respect to the people that we interact with, um, who, who might have ulterior motives, who might be folks that we need to watch out for, um, how do we have a better scientific way of recognizing that there's something that we need to be watching for. Um, we spend a lot of time with individuals, and, and, and this business requires a lot of trust of folks that you're sharing secrets with. Um, you want to make sure that you have a way that's a bit more uh, grounded in science to do that, and we've got a great person that's been working that one, you know, who really has been looking at the psychological aspects of things like this to try to make it as scientific as possible. You're looking at physical indicators, you're looking at, okay. So it's 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 trying to take to the next level what people already kind of like, oh, you're looking up into the left or whatever that means, you're, <laughs> but more scientifically grounded than that. Absolutely, absolutely. So I just two more quick things to ask you about. One is the Integrated Cognitive Neuroscience Architectures for Understanding Sensemaking, or Icarus. I kind of picked this one because Icarus is kind of a cool name, but also as we were looking at um, these new, trying to figure out new analytic methodology. Uh, for those out there in listener world that are kind of really focused on the collection side, analysis is very important as well. Uh, and there's something called SANTAs, or Structured Analytic Techniques. Uh, that's kind of how analysts analyze uh, and in one of the big problems there are cognitive biases and everything that we bring as human beings to the table, whether we assume everyone's going to act the same way we are or confirmation bias, etc. This sounds like the kind of developed plan to kind of change the way analysis is done to try to get rid of those. Am I on the right ballpark there? I think we've got a couple of programs that are working that in yeah. that aspect. What can we do from the training side, you know, grounded in science, that actually helps people recognize the bias and helps mitigate it so that they can actually go into their analysis without having those influencing their outcome. Uh, being able to help people perform at their best is 100% what we do in the analytic space. And um, that was one program that actually did try to do that, correct? Let me... Let me end this by asking you about something I'm really interested in is that's quantum computing. It seems like that's kind of the next big thing. I, I could be wrong, but if you're looking back at, you know, throughout history of big scientific developments, you know, whether it's internal combustion engine or nuclear power or, you know, the internet, it seems like quantum computing is that like next, maybe there's several, maybe biomedicine and bioengineering, but quantum computing could be a real game changer going forward, whether it's creating codes or, or ciphers or, uh, doing the kind of stuff the human brain can only do right now. Um, do you see, I know you're a mechanical engineer, you're not, you're not a computer scientist, but do you see quantum computing as really kind of the next wave of, of transforming the world around us? So I think quantum computing is a possibility for that, yes. I think we have uh, quite a number of different programs that we're doing in computing in general, and superconducting computing is, is one of the other ones. Um, and then the neuromorphic that we talked about with respect to modeling, mimicking mm -hmm. the way the brain does things. Um, we're sort of hedging our bets to, to make sure that we're covering many different approaches in computing. I do think computing will continue to drive 
innovation in this country, our ability to analyze more, our ability to deal with all the data that's out there. Quantum definitely has a lot of potential for a lot of different applications. So we, um, time will turn, tell, right? Yeah. It's, it's a very different way of doing computing, and there's a lot to be done to get to the point where we can use a quantum computer the way that we use regular computers. So I lied, one last question. Uh, uh, <laughs> IARPA has to kind of think ahead, right? You have to kind of look into the future, not super far, you know, maybe three to five years, but maybe a little further than that. Um, and, and how do you decide, do you look at potential future threats from the outside world as a way to guide your progress, a way to guide your programs? Are you, are you using intelligence community information to, uh, to say, all right, well, the Russians are developing X, Y, and Z, or the Chinese are developing this, or uh, it sounds like, North Korea's weaponizing anthrax. They're not, let me at least throw that out there. We have no evidence about that, at least in the open space world, but do you look at indicators from the IC about what potentially is coming in the next 10, 15, 20 years and base some of what you're doing on that? So I would say we, we look at indicators not only within the IC, but external to it. You know, where's industry going? Where's academia going? Being able to know, um, being able to know what the sex science and technology advances are going to be that are going to impact the world. And we're looking at more than threats. We're also looking at opportunities, mm -hmm. things that uh, appear on the horizon and look like great ways to just do something differently. But then there's, a, there's an aspect of it that could be turned and used as a threat. So we're looking at a lot of different mm -hmm. sources, not limiting ourselves to a particular country. Generally speaking, not limiting ourselves to, well, this country is going to develop that. It really is more broadly this is something that countries are developing this capability and how do we make sure that we understand not only how fast they're developing it but what the possibilities are and should it be something that we need to be worried about you know how do we know at the earliest opportunity that they, they've actually achieved it because not everything is going to be published not everything is going to be openly discussed right well dr stacy dixon the deputy director of iarpa thank you so much for joining us today on spycast it's to be able to nerd out with you is, is a lot of fun today. So I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. It's been, it's been fun for me as well. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.